Welcome to the Broadcorb Report with host Becky Allery and Michael Broadcorb. And I am your moderator, Todd Walker. We have an exciting show ahead today. We have some topics that we're going to revisit from last week, but that absolutely are top of the news this week as well. So we're going to touch those. We have a great special guest that's going to be joining us as well, Zach Stevenson. And of course, we're going to find out what the tweets are of the week. Welcome, Becky. Welcome, Michael. How was your week? Weekend was great. Kid's getting one of his first teeth, and, you know, we're surviving. Really? The first tooth? It's rough, man. A little bit of uh, crying in the household? Just a little bit from both of us. I bet. I bet. Michael, how was your week? Fantastic weekend. All right. Nice weather. Fantastic time. Nice weather. Well, it's it's Minnesota. No sunshine in January. Well, let's get right into it, guys. I can't help but bringing back some of the topics that seriously just do not seem to go away. We have to hit... Of course, what we have found out regarding Biden, I mean, this is pretty amazing. Of course, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, we're going to give you, I'm going to give you a little background on this, guys. The Federal Bureau investigated to search President Biden's Delaware home on Friday and located six items containing classified markings. This comes after roughly 10 documents being classified markings were discovered by Mr. Biden's personal lawyer at a Penn Biden Center on November 2nd. Other records marked classified were also found in the garage at the president's Wilmington home on December 20th, Through the, though the White House did not disclose the discovery until last week. You guys, this comes to a total number of classified documents found since November at 25 and between 25 and 30. All right. So, Michael, Becky, we talked about this last week, but it's not going away. It just seems to be getting worse and worse. I'm surprised. Um, I am surprised that we're finding more documents. Um, And it shows, I think it's a growing problem, I think, for the president. Um, His, a couple of things, Uh, his chief of staff announced, or there's, let me rephrase that. His chief of staff is rumored to be leaving around the time of the state of the state. State of the Union, excuse me, um, since he's the president, State of the Union. Um, this is a problem that's continuing to grow. I'm surprised that we are a week after our last recording, and there's been additional developments with this. I think that from what I'm hearing from watching on the news, seeing on social media, uh, and then talking with folks, uh, I don't have sources, obviously, but just general observations, is that people are surprised that there's a constant drip, drip, drip here, that new information keeps coming out. Um, as you pointed out, Todd, this is there's been you know f- basically three known incidents of documents being found, three separate incidents. The number is between 25 and 30 that have been found, and that's problematic. Um, obviously, there's a contrast with the former president, uh, Donald Trump. It seems that that was much more of a hostile uh, process. It seems by all accounts that the Biden administration and Biden is cooperating in this investigation, working in collaboration with the National Archives. Uh, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. There's no evidence of there being any raids of any sorts, but they're cooperating. Ultimately, though, that doesn't really change the facts of the matter, which is that the president, it's clear that President Biden mishandled the use of classified documents, and that's going to be a problem. Now, Becky, last week you were uh, you hit on some interesting points about how it's the difference between the way the DFL and the Republicans are handling this and when this happened to Donald Trump and how the press handled it. So g- share with us your insight now as we more begins to unfold. 
Yeah, you know, I, I guess I will give a little credit that uh, uh, apparently the White House called for this additional search. Um, so, uh, sure, that's great. He's being forthcoming. It's almost like he knew that there was more spaces, p- places that they, they were hidden and wanted somebody else to find them. Um, but one of the, you know, there was a tweet I saw over the weekend that um, from a, a former CEO of the DNC, now uh, a news, looks like somebody in the news, um, said, I am a lot more worried about Marjorie Taylor Greene having access to classified documents and Donald Trump than I am about Biden. Don't fall for both sides in this. If you think there are any of these situations and risks are the same, then you are part of the problem. Now, this is exactly what we were talking about, that it's they're trying to make it more about the personality of the individual than the facts of the situation. And the facts of the situation are classified documents on both sides. Sure, Trump could see additional charges of obstruction of justice because he's not being forthcoming. Um, But as you said, Michael, there's three different locations 25 to 30 documents and some of these coming from his senate time which even senator ted cruz tweeted how does that happen when all classified documents when you're in the senate are you know read and looked at at in this private locked up room do you think that most americans look at this story becky and tattoo look at this story and just say it's a pock on both houses it's a mark on both houses they're both doing the same thing or do you think they're understanding the differences in the cases i think because of the way the press is portraying it they're seeing the differences do you think that cases are substantively more serious than one one versus the other? I mean, it's kind of one of those, you know, if this was a, a court of law, right, you go through precedence and what happened time and time and time again, it, it, it seems like this is a habitual offender in, in Joe Biden. Correct. I would say to you, though, from my standpoint, it seems that the, the former president, Donald Trump's, was certainly more combative and hostile with the National Archives. Right. There seemed to be more of a, a legal standoff in terms of returning the documents, accessing them, and sharing the information. It seems by all accounts that the Biden administration is cooperating. Now, there's a level of incompetence that's coming from this that they're, they keep finding them. By all accounts, it is a cooperation. Does that make a difference in your head? I mean, maybe not in my head, but in, yeah, I guess it, I, I guess sure, it does. I mean, it definitely seems like maybe Trump has more to hide or is just playing his role of being combative. That is who he is and what we're known for, where Biden is known for kind of, you know, trying to figure out what's going on on any given day. I have a question for both of you. How, how is this happening? I mean, you know, when you're looking at our government, I mean, whether it's Republicans or Democrat, do you believe that there's malicious intent actually happening here, that this somebody is trying to hide things? Or is this just absolutely sloppy procedures at the government level? I would say it's uh, mostly incompetence. I don't know. Um, let me let me rephrase it. Um, I don't know that there's been a, necessarily a motive assigned to Joe Biden's procurement of these documents or, or him having these documents, any type of nefarious motive. It seems that um, that seems to be only categorized in, in the Trump situation. I mean, the, the initial kind of conversations and discussions and narrative is that there was some there was some agenda on the former president's part potentially political or otherwise for keeping these documents and wanting to access the information. I don't know if that applies to the Biden, the Biden's documents. That being said, I don't know how much it matters right now. I think that there's, well, I think it will, it will only matter when the two separate special investigators, special counsels that are looking into this, depending on the conclusions that they come to. And I hope that the American public looks through through the lens of the differences in the facts of the case. But as Becky pointed out, and I think you know we're somewhat in agreement on, I think both sides just see this as 
they're equal pox on equal houses, and but they're being treated differently in some context. You know, one thing I was actually surprised about is the number of Democrats that have come out um, expressing their frustration with the Biden administration for their handling. There was a quote about... Um, uh, from Senator Senate Majority Leader Whip Dick Durbin saying, when the information is found, it diminishes the stature of any person who was in possession of it. Um, whether it's the fault of a staffer or an attorney, it makes no difference. The election elected official bears ultimate responsibility. And I agree. Let me ask you something. Um, as I'm listening to that comment, it's pretty tough language from yeah. Senator Durbin. Do you think that this will be a predicate for Biden not to run again in, in, in two years? I, I, I wouldn't be surprised that there is some folks working behind the scenes to make this more of a case for to to lay that groundwork. I hadn't thought about that till you read that question, but I'm wondering if Democrats I mean, you know, there is there is you know, there's been some concern uh been raised about, you know, the president's health. Uh is he gonna run again? Should he be stepping aside for someone else? I wonder if since Becky, you know, brought that good quote up, I wonder if this is gonna be kind of the groundwork for there to be uh, uh, we need to have a change at the top of the ticket, having someone who's not embroiled in this type of scandal, particularly if the former president is going to run, as he is running, and he's the nominee. Uh, it would be a good opportunity for Democrats to sidestep a messaging issue if they were to pick someone who wasn't embroiled in a similar issue. I see. I can't imagine that that would happen, actually, Michael. The, I, think I, think Biden, I think Biden is not going to want to be going out of office as a disgraced president. So I don't think they would ever put that put it that him in that position i think you're right out. i think you may be right but two years is a long time i mean he's gonna you know quote unquote redeem himself in two years but i feel like this could be something you know they're if people are looking to push him out this might be something that behind the scenes they take to him to look at okay this is interesting because as, as the kind of the, we're on episode 13 here and this has probably been the scandal that's been going on the longest since this happened do you think when we come back next week or a week from now there'll be more documents or do you think that this is the end of it I, I mean, this has got to be the end of it, right? I uh, don't know. I don't know. How about you, Todd? I think in in three week, three weeks to a month, we will not even be t- discussing this. I I just I think it becomes very salient and important to the two different parties battling against each other, trying to call the other one out. But it seems to always just kind of go away. You know, one thing that I think might allow it to continue to run is um, there. Prior to this and and throughout this, there has been conversations about. Um, visitor log at, at the private residence of the president um, and lack thereof. Uh, apparently, you know, they, the Biden's folks have come out and said that um, they don't keep a visitor log because it's just a personal residence. There's there's no work being done there. Now, Republicans have been pushing that. I actually, you know, kind of agreed. If it's a personal residence, you know, who, who are we to know or the coming and going? Now that they found somewhere between maybe 12, 15 classified documents there, Maybe they they this new surge of these visitor logs. If you're keeping classified documents there, you're probably keeping unclassified work documents there. And who's coming and going to see those documents? You're absolutely right. I, I don't know. I, I would have said last week that that was the end of it. Uh, I'm not. I know enough now to not know enough. And I'm going to say I don't know. Uh, I'm going to say I don't know to answer my own questions. I don't know. I think there's a possibility that we could come back in a week or so, uh, and um, there could be more documents found. I think it's interesting for us to talk about it. Because it provides current context for how Becky and I each have approached our jobs in the past in terms of media. So 
Uh, I think it'd be a good subject to come back to. We'll certainly follow the developments, but I don't know if this is the end of it. All right. Well, continue listening to the Broadcorp Report because we will keep you informed with what we're finding out about the uh, documents as they continually seem to trickle out. Now, the other story that just will not go away and is almost taking a more of a humorous bent to it is George Santos. What is true about this incoming representative's life story? Is he broke? Is he rich? Is he Jewish? Is he Catholic? Did his family members really die in the Holocaust or September 11th? Most often, it's best to assume what the, what the Republican from Los Angeles has said about his life is all bogus. Specifically, I want to talk to you guys about some of the new allegations that came out. He lied about where he went to high school. He lied about where he went to college. Even they, they reached out to the college, and the college said, no, no, no. He never went here. So, you know, it continues to trickle out. And this whole idea that his mother's death was related to 9-11, uh, the whole Holocaust story, even, even Saturday Night Live took a little bit of a, a, little bit of a jab at, the, uh, the Senator, or the, uh, at Santos, excuse me, uh, with one of their skits that uh, Becky so, so nicely shared with us a little bit earlier. So uh, what do you guys think? I mean, what, what's happening here? I mean, wow. Don't change your dials. This is literally the second topic we're repeating from last week because so many new developments. I mean, I thought last week was wild, and this week is, is, is even more wild. So um, there are, are photos that have come out um, showing him – uh, some calling him a, a drag queen, some saying that he is dressed as a woman. I mean, Michael, what was the quote? Do you have that up in front of you? Um, the, his, his, his admission? Yeah. Well, he was asked, uh, the Long Island, Long Island congressman was asked by reporters at LaGuardia Airport on Saturday um, uh, about these photographs, which clearly are him. There's Cle- photographs I mean, and video of him. you got to look it up if you haven't seen it. It, is, it couldn't be more clear. And it, it, his response was to say, quote, no, I was not a drag queen in Brazil, guys. I was young and had fun at a festival. Festival, sue me for having a life. Now, I will say to you, uh, it's a distinction a little bit without a difference. I mean, if he's dressing up, I mean, I, I don't. I guess I don't know. I mean, he. I think he was because he denied that. I mean, he had sent out a tweet saying he wasn't performing in drag. Um, I don't. I guess I don't know the distinction between. Perform- I think he was trying to say it, it was not an ongoing thing. It was a one-time thing. Got it. Okay. I think the the substance of the question that people were asking is, did you dress as a woman in Brazil when you were there? And he initially denied it. And right. so, I mean, I get that. I mean, I get, I get his, I mean, I understand his point about saying, sue me for having a life. I think the problem is for Santos is that there's such a collection of this type of stuff going on that I think is ultimately problematic for him. And it, it continues and it continues and it continues. It's just kind of the cherry on top of the Sunday, uh, really, of what's been going on. And apparently he was in Brazil between 2005-2008. Um, the individual who, who put forth this photo or shared it with the press had said that this was uh, a, an ongoing thing that he did multiple times over the years. Um, and, you know, it. I think it comes down to... I mean, just let's be frank. If you look at the Republican Party, in particular, the religious right part of the Republican Party, have a lot of would have a lot of issues if they if they knew this. Now, I'm not saying I know his district well enough to know whether that that would have been an issue if that's the only lie or fib or fabrication or part of his real identity that was being hidden. Um, but I would I would likely think that there would be some voters voting for him. That would not like their congressman elect um, having formally dressed as a woman. Yep, a uh, Bill Maher 
did a fantastic discussion on this, talking about how George Santos presented everything to both sides, to Republicans and Democrats, uh, this past election. He found a way to lie to both parties. Uh, and I think that's part of the problem. What I've said consistently on the show as we've discussed this, is the largest problem for Santos is going to be some of the campaign finance issues that resolve. And, um, you know, there's an extensive article in The Hill, which, which I'll share on social media, that discusses the fact that it, where he's in serious trouble is about his personal wealth, his personal uh, disclosure forms, about potential campaign finance investigations related to his money, contributions to his campaign, other things. As we said, as I said before, uh, Santos' problems are only going to get worse. And, and where I think he's ultimately going to get in trouble, if there are issues, is with some of the campaign finance reports, potentially IRS and other type of reports that are filed against the committee. I, I think that the, the, the drag queen commentary is a little bit of, for lack of a better phrase, a little bit of a sideshow. Uh, and the heart and the substance of where he's really going to have in trouble, he's going to have some troubles with some of these campaign finance matters. And it could lead to, depending on how this goes, it could lead to some uh, criminal prosecutions. You're not going to get criminally prosecuted for, for lying about appearing in, uh, you know, dressing in drag in Brazil. It hurts his credibility, which is in the toilet right now. Mm-hmm. But what's really going to put him in serious trouble is the ethics complaints and these campaign finance complaints that are coming down the road. Yeah, like we talked to last week, if, if you didn't listen and go back and go back and hear it, um, I mean, there's really, aside from, from FEC complaints or anything of that matter, there really isn't anything that can be done. You can lie. Um, you can't lie about others, but you can lie about yourself. And he's certainly getting away with that. I have two questions for you. Number one, you worked on at, in Washington, D.C. You worked on the Hill. Explain to me how, from your perspective, from your professional experience, how this must just be crippling his office. Can his office function? And then I have a follow-up question for you. I mean, especially on the communication side, I mean, you, you're you not able to get anything done. So here you just start. You want to be able to um, talk about the committees you're seated on. He was seated on the committees, much to the dismay of some Democrats. You want to talk about the first bills you're being introduced. You want to talk about, you know, usually you're making the rounds, introducing yourself to the press, you know, my, meeting your new colleagues, um, you know, everything of that sort. And... You know, as a staffer, it's got to be hard for those. I mean, I'm going to say kids because largely they are, you know, most a lot of congressional staffers are, you know, early to early 20s, mid 30s, you know, up there, you know, having to say this is, you know, they're probably so excited. They're working for a congressman, whether they've they've worked there or not before or not. And and how embarrassing. Do you think he can uh, affect I mean, so you think his the scandals that are going on right now make it, in essence, functionally He's not able to operate as a full member of Congress. I, I doubt there are many calls coming into that office saying, you know, um, I want to know what he's, where he stands on the transportation bill or, you know, X, Y, and Z policy. I, I would argue that large part of these are constituents and non-constituents um, calling, asking about the scandals and that, you know, having those non-constituents by bogging down your phone lines really disrupts, you know, you representing the taxpayers that elected you. Uh, one last follow-up question. Do you think, what's going on in your estimation behind the scenes, and you think that he runs for re-election if he makes it through his term? Ooh, that's a million-dollar question. You know, I, I think no. Um, one of the things that I think is is really unfortunate, um, I was reading an article this weekend of, um, of of the ties to Elise Stefanik. Elise Stefanik, you know, by and large, a rising star in the Republican Party. Um, she's very young, mother, um, has been a large, large 
loud um, advocate uh, for strong Republican politics or candidates, um, women, and I think she's fourth in command right now in in the House. Um, She's also from New York. She was a very loud, vocal advocate for Santos. Now all of these donors are coming out and saying, the only reason I donated to Santos is because of Elise Stefanik. I gave Stefanik's PAC money to, you know, so and and they, they gave some of that money to Santos. So when you have some of these other members that are starting to really feel that pressure, losing donors, losing support, because they supported you, that's where I feel like, you know, he's, he's really going to be losing some of that. Back. Well, we certainly will continue to follow this story and to bring you uh, the, our insight as well as anything that we learn from the news. But So to be sure to turn into the Broadcord Report as George Santos' story unfolds. Well, welcome State Representative Zach Stevenson to the Broadcord Report. Zach is the Chair of Commerce finance and policy. But today we are here to talk about Mary Jane, cannabis, weed, whatever you want to call it, but marijuana. So this should be a lively conversation. I'm definitely interested to uh, hear what State Representative Zach has to say. So Michael and Becky, take it away. Um, Representative, first I want to stop by just saying uh, thank you for being here today. Um, uh, Interest of disclosure, I've known Representative Stevens for a number of years. Uh, He was elected in 2018 to the Minnesota legislature. Um, In this DFL majority, he has a number of leadership roles, which we're excited to talk with him about today. Representative Stevens, I just want to thank you at the beginning for being here today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. I'm going to turn it over to my able co-host, Becky Allery, to kick things off. Yeah. Hi, Representative. Um, I just have to give a little shout out here. Um, You represent the district where I actually grew up. So uh, that's a fun little fact here. I knew there was something I liked about you. Yeah. Great little Anoka from from the A-Town. Get up there often. My parents still live up in Ramsey. They transitioned up there a little bit later. But um, yep. Great area. We we certainly love it. Halloween capital of the world. It is the Halloween. I've covered that, man. That is all about Halloween. We take it pretty seriously. It's a lot of fun. If you have never been, you should definitely go. Representative Stevenson, um, you know, uh, DFL controls the House, the Senate, and the governor's office. Coming into this legislative session, you've always been elected since 2018. How do you see the legislative session playing out? Um, and I'd like to ask also from, from your perspective as a, as, you know, as a committee chair in the DFL also, you know, I would encourage you to talk about the legislation you're highlighting. But I also wanted to ask you on, on, to also frame it up in the context of what's the role of the Republicans this session? So I threw a lot about it. I threw a lot out there. So I'm just going to shut up and, and, and you take it over from there, sir. Yeah, well, I think uh, we just got through uh, an election. So most people here have just spent a large amount of time talking with constituents at their doors and door knocking. And the thing I heard from everyone, Republicans, Democrats, and Independents, was they were tired of the gridlock. They were tired of the partisan fight. They were tired of the bickering. They want the legislature to solve problems and get things done. And I think that is what you are going to see this year. We are working hard down here at the legislature uh, at a pace that is not typical uh, for January uh, and the early weeks of session. Usually the early weeks of session are full of sleepy uh, overview hearings and a lot of trying to put together bills, but we are working hard. We've already passed into law um, a tax uh, cut for a lot of Minnesotans. Uh, We've uh, passed in the House uh, a codification of reproductive rights, of abortion rights in uh, Minnesota. Uh, Later today, we're going to pass two bills, one 
that would extend unemployment benefits for laid off uh, uh, miners up on the Iron Range, and another that would allow us to have access to those federal funds and the bipartisan infrastructure bill last year. So we're, we're working hard, and I think we are working to some extent collaboratively. Yes, it is unified DFL control, but I can tell you that on the bills that, that I have, that I, where I'm the chief author, whether it's the cannabis bill uh, or the price gouging bill or other bills, uh, I've been working with Republicans and trying to, to find um, uh, things that solutions that work for both parties. Uh, I may not need their votes to get a bill passed this year because of unified DFL control, but I think that our policy is better and it's more durable if we work across the aisle. Uh, it does me no good to pass a bill uh, that lasts for two years until the Republicans win an election and repeal it. I want lasting and durable well, we appreciate your optimism that Republicans are going to be winning elections in two years. I will take that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but something you mentioned, and obviously one of the big things we want to talk to you about here, is you are the chief author on legalization of marijuana. Can you speak a little bit to the bills you're working on? Um, you know, the majority of Minnesotans do support that, um, less so on the Republican side, more so on the Democrat side, but across the board, majorities do support. So a little bit about your bill and your efforts up at the Capitol. Yeah, so I think that Minnesotans are ready for legal cannabis. I think it's pretty clear that the current laws that we have around cannabis are doing more harm than good. We're spending uh, millions of dollars and thousands of person hours uh, trying to uh, work up a criminal justice solution that isn't going to work. I mean, we've had decades of uh, practice at trying to stamp out uh, the cannabis market with a criminal justice solution. It's not working. Uh, and uh, Minnesotans deserve to be respected enough to make their own decisions about cannabis. So what my bill does is it would create a legal marketplace uh, for cannabis uh, with a lot of consumer protections designed to make sure that people you know, can have confidence that what they're consuming is safe, designed to keep it out of the hands of young people, designed to keep it off of out of the system of people who are driving, address a lot of those downstream approaches, Yes, collect some tax revenue, although this is not a bill that's about raising money for the state, uh, but also would have that impact as well. Uh, but fundamentally, create a legal marketplace uh, where adults can make adult decisions about whether or not they want to consume cannabis. There has been some concerns raised by public safety groups about this, about legalizing marijuana. What's your perspective on that, and, and what is your bill doing to address some of those concerns? Yeah, it's an issue that's really important to me, and I know it's really important to you, Michael, uh, about making sure that our roads are safe uh, and that we are uh, dealing with uh, the public safety impacts of legalizing cannabis in a, um, in a responsible way. I will tell you that I take it really seriously and that I'm incorporating uh, suggestions uh, and listening to feedback from law enforcement groups uh, and, you know, non-governmental organizations that work on safe roads issues like the DWI task force uh, as an example. Um, the bill uh, devotes a lot of resources to that and there's a lot of uh, measures that find analogy in, in the laws around liquor. For example, you know, you can't have an open beer in your car. Even if you're not drinking it, you can't have it while you're driving, right? And so we're going to adopt a, a similar provision in the cannabis um, bill that makes clear that you can't have open containers of cannabis uh, in, a, in a motor vehicle. No one can consume more cannabis, not even if they're a passenger, uh, in a motor vehicle. 
uh, while it's operational. That's just one example. You know, kind of along those lines, I know one of the concerns um, that I've seen or heard from from my fellow Republicans is that this is a gateway drug. Can you speak a little bit to maybe uh, the science or research or, or your thoughts behind that? Well, number one, I don't know that there is a lot of research showing that cannabis is, in fact, a gateway drug. I, I don't think that there's a lot of evidence to support that. But what I will tell you is that um, when you create a legitimate marketplace, uh you pull people out of that illicit marketplace and into the legitimate marketplace, which can have some important impacts. So if I want to consume cannabis right now as a citizen, what I have to do is go to a drug dealer, right? Someone who sells cannabis illegally. Uh, that's my only option. And that person might sell other illegal substances that I would then have easy access to. Uh, if cannabis is legal, I'm very likely to instead go to a dispensary, a legal establishment that isn't going to be selling any other illegal drugs. So I think that uh, if you're concerned about cannabis being a gateway drug, um, making uh, cannabis legal breaks the link between cannabis and other illegal substances, the link being the person who sells it. Zach, this is Todd Walker. I was wondering, you talked a little bit about the open container law. Is this something that is being done in, in any other states, and is this setting precedent? Because that was kind of interesting and something new to me. You know, that's a great question. There are 22 states now that have legalized cannabis. I won't pretend to know every uh, comma and semicolon and every law in those 22 states. Uh, I... Um, I don't know is the answer is if other states have adopted uh, an open container law, but I think it's something important for us to do here. Do you think that this passes this session? Um, and, and, and where's the, if, if it, what's the trajectory for it this session, if you do think it passes? I think it does pass this session. It's moving uh, already in the House. We've had two committee hearings. We have two more scheduled uh, this week. It's uh, going to be getting committee hearings in the Senate uh, this week as well. So we are um, seeing it moving on, on both sides uh, of, the, of the Capitol. And I think that um, there's a lot of momentum behind uh, doing it. So, yes, I do think it happens this year. I think that there will be some time uh, needed uh, to get through implementation and set up those consumer protections and other regulations before it's legal, uh, like before you are actually able to buy it at a legal dispensary. But... Um, it's one of my goals is to shorten the time frame as much as possible between when uh, we pass a bill and when the legal market opens up. Because my view is, and we've seen this in other states, once you pass the bill to the average person, cannabis is legal. Even if it's not going to be truly legal for a few more months or a year or whatever, the public sees it as being legal the moment the governor signs the bill. And so if you don't, have a legal marketplace operational, that illicit marketplace really thrives in that in-between time. So I, I want that as short as possible, but it will still take months to set up the marketplace. Um, I had Representative uh, Becky and I and Todd spoke with Representative Garofalo last week for the podcast. And one of the comments he made, and I would really be curious to get your perspective on this. Um, one of the comments he made is that um, the Democrats are moving uh, with uh, – at, at, a, at, a, at a very good pace. It's something I've noted in other interviews that I've done too. But that the makeup of the legislature uh, in terms of the DFL governing majority is not made up of many pragmatists and moderates. 
And I wanted to give you an opportunity just to, to offer your perspective on that, not necessarily as a rebuttal or a challenge to Representative Garofalo, but since you are a member of the DFL caucus, I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to offer your perspective on that. Uh, I like Pat Garofalo. I consider him a friend. He's dead wrong. Uh, and I, I mean, I didn't hear the comment, but uh, there's a lot of pragmatic people uh, in leadership in both the House and the Senate starting with the leaders. I, you know, we have a phenomenal Speaker of the House in Minnesota, in Melissa Hortman, who's extremely pragmatic, uh, who's very skillful, uh, thoughtful uh, leader. Uh, and I, I, I don't think that there's much evidence to support the idea that she's not a pragmatic uh, person. Um, and I think the Senate uh, chose in Carrie Dietzik, just one of the most thoughtful, hardworking, unselfish uh, senators <laughs> I could go further and not say senators, but public servants we have in Minnesota. Um, we don't have leadership that are ideologues uh, pushing a radical agenda. We have leaders who are pragmatists and problem solvers who are trying to make Minnesotans' lives uh, better. I'm going to let I'm going to let my co-host respond to the substance of what you said, but let me let me just interrupt and say <laughs> I'm outraged offended and aghast that you don't listen to the Broadcore Report on a weekly basis and get the type of rich commentary that Todd Walker, Becky Allery, and myself are offering on a weekly basis. And I hope your, your, in, your invite also spurs you to listen to the back episodes and the deep tracks of this podcast because it is compelling and it is rich. Um, off to Becky Allery for a follow-up. Uh, no, I was actually going to pivot. I mean, I say as as uh, as a former comms director, I, your your response was was spot on. You know, you're you're talking to your leadership, pumping them up. So you're doing your job. Pat was doing his job. But one thing you said you, he was wrong on this. One thing I think you might think he was right on is sports betting. Um, so if you want to speak a little bit to your efforts and possibly your efforts with uh, with Representative Garofalo on legalizing sports betting as well. Yeah, I think that uh, that's a bill that is also ready for action this year. We're still developing the language a little bit. It hasn't been introduced yet, hasn't got committee hearings yet this year. But I think that there's a lot of optimism and momentum around that bill uh, as well. Uh, it's another one where I think most Minnesotans say, why, why is this not done yet? Um, you know, every state that touches Minnesota has legalized some form of uh, sports betting. Canada has legal sports betting. So we're surrounded uh, and I just sort of operate from the principle that no Minnesotan should have to go to Iowa to have fun. Easy. Uh, the, 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 the <laughs> uh, we should have a safe, legal, responsible sports betting market in Minnesota that deals with the downstream effects, is honest about problem aiming, and tries to deal with those consequences. We can do that. Representative, um, one of the things, um, we have a few more minutes here with you, but I want to ask you about the past election results. Um, that happened on November. Were you surprised on Election Day, um, looking back at what occurred that day? I know a number of Republicans were, but did you have a sense as to how the election was going to come out that way and where you thought it was going to break? Because, you know, in speaking with the R Republican activists all across the state, I think there was a general surprise, particularly when it came to the legislative. And I wanted just to, to see from your perspective, your thoughts coming into the election, what you thought coming in and, and what would be the message coming out? So, as I mentioned, I spent this election season door knocking. I mean, literally talking to thousands of voters in a purple district. Coon Rapids and Anoka is a 50-50 area. Uh, and so I have to be honest with you, I wasn't that surprised because what I was hearing from voters was not a massive swing in one direction or another. Uh, it felt to me like voters uh, 
you know, partisanship was largely where it was before. And so, you know, we had this massive campaign and on the, and as it turns out, the partisan composition of the Minnesota House didn't change. We have the exact same number of Democrats and Republicans that we had uh, before. Voters of both stripes have complaints about, as I mentioned, the, the gridlock. Uh, and they had specific concerns about education and healthcare, public safety, and so on. Uh, but I, I was not feeling a wave. And and you don't you don't have to take my word. I was saying that publicly before the election that I just didn't I didn't feel it on the ground. Okay, I'll have to check my uh, Zach Stevenson uh, research file at home to make sure that's correct. But, but but I, I know it's I know it's very thorough. It it is thorough, <laughs> sir. And, and and thank you for saying that. I take that as a compliment, Becky. You know, we talk a little bit about the pragmatic members of your caucus. Um, now, obviously, there are folks on both sides of the spectrum. Um, can you speak, you know, are you expecting on the Senate, there's a very slim, you know, margin that there is to work for, work through. Um, are you expecting there to be any infighting on some of these bills? Or what, if you could name one bill that you expect the, the spectrum to have left or right or the, the DFL to have some issues between the sides of your spectrum, uh, what would what bill would that be that has the most strife? You know, the interesting thing is people talk about the, the small majority as a uh, weakness, but there's a way in which it's a strength, uh, which is that if you're a member of a team where you need every single person on the team to be on board to be successful, then it's a strong incentive to build a really strong team. And uh, you don't have to look very far to see an example. You know, when Republicans had the Senate for the last four years, but particularly the years of 2019 and 2020, they had a very small majority, a similarly small majority. And they were also kind of on an island because you had a DFL House and a DFL governor. But they, despite having, you know, some members who were much more suburban moderate, people like Paul Anderson, and some members who were very conservative from very deep red uh, areas, they were consistently putting up the 34 votes that they needed to advance their view of how state government should go. And I know a lot of behind the scenes work went into getting to that point, but you have to think about it. If you're one of 34 and you know you need the other 33 to do what you want to do, you're going to be really careful not to screw up what someone else wants to do. Otherwise, it's going to come around to bite you, right? So. There has to be a really good team built. And that's where I think Kerry Dietzik, as the Senate Majority Leader, uh, is just such a phenomenal uh, uh, person for that role. Because she is someone who listens more than she speaks, who puts her head down and gets to work, who's unselfish, uh, I really think she's going to build a really strong team there that's going to stick together. Zach, uh, I just want to just note for the record, I know Becky has a follow-up. That was an A-plus question, Becky, and that was an A-plus answer. I mean, it's amazing to see you, too. You served it up, and his answer was fantastic. He is a pro. You are, too. Great job. You know, I think you've said more nice things about Republicans than my co-host this last uh, 12 episodes. Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, I know you have to get off to a committee hearing. I have one very serious question for you. I hear there's a turkey terrorizing Coon Rapids. Do you have any insight on this situation? We're keeping very close tabs on the turkey. It's taking up all of my attention. To make sure that we keep the people from the turkey. I actually will tell you, in all seriousness, I got a next door alert this morning um, from uh, on the next door app of someone saying, "This is awful! I can't believe 
that people are are besmirching this good turkey. We call them gabba gabba. We love this turkey. So this is a very this is a very controversial issue up in the North Metro, as it turns out. Uh, this turkey. Well, I hope I hope that uh, you remain safe up in that area, and that this that this that this the situation comes to a, a thoughtful result. I want to be so respectful of your time. I know we all do. I just want to say you say you again, Representative Stevens. Thank you so much for joining us today. You and I go back a number of years. I hope we can have you back on uh, to talk about the legislative session, ask more questions, uh, provide me more opportunities to add to the uh, Oppo file that's growing on a very steady and consistent basis with you, sir. But I do appreciate your time. And, and the work that you're doing on behalf of the people of, of your legislative district. And uh, I just want to thank you again for coming on. And can we get a thank commitment Can we get a commitment from you that you're going to be a regular listener of the Broadcorp Report? <laughs> I will be a commitment that I will come on again. Thank you so much. Well, all right. <laughs> nice pivot. All right. Representative uh, Stevenson, thank you so much again for the opportunity to come on today. And uh, we wish you the best today. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, bye. bye-bye. Well, that was certainly an insightful interview. I got to tell you, I learned a lot more than I ever thought uh, about the legalization of marijuana. So I want to pass it to the two of you. So where do you both stand on legalizing marijuana? Becky? You know, as we talked about our our first podcast, my Twitter bio says I am a hippie at heart. And this is kind of one of those reasons. I I support the legalization of of marijuana. I do think, um, you know, he kind of downplayed the financial aspect of it. I do think it can be a tax base. I do think there can be um, some income revenue that comes into it. Not that Minnesota needs maybe that with our $18 billion surplus right now. Um, But I do think that has a big side of it. and And I agree. I think that there is a large uh, amount in this day and age of folks that um, use marijuana, that smoke marijuana, that um, do it currently illegally, um, that are very, you know, smart, upstanding citizens, you know, that are quote, are, are doing a crime, right? I mean, it's illegal right now. They're committing a crime by smoking marijuana, which is legal in 22 other states. And so um, I think it's time to do this. I think that there are um, for the prison and juvenile justice side of things it's time it's certainly time michael i i mean i i agree with a lot of the arguments that becky just made my my concern is from the just from a public safety perspective um as i've talked before on the air um i have uh, i drove drunk once i had a dui i'm concerned and i've been an advocate uh volunteering for over 10 years uh nearly 10 years on issues related to drinking and driving and impaired driving so i'm concerned about impairment on the road um I'm con- so as long as that component can be satisfied in a responsible way and that it provides the tools and resources to law enforcement to be able to deal with that issue, um, I understand and I agree with a lot of what Becky said. Uh, but that is a concern of mine. So I hope and, – and I have faith. I was – I was. Um, uh, I, th- I think if there's anyone at the legislature that can, can tackle this type of issue, it's, it's Representative Stevenson. I have faith that, that he understands the – uh, the complexity of the issues, and if anyone can build a necessary coalition, including the component from law enforcement, I think that's important to get done. Do you think that an issue of this type that is kind of highly partisan, um, do you think that there are more concerns about some of that, those kind of uh, public safety aspects being ironed out or being maybe thoughtfully presented um, while it's going through the legislative process when they don't maybe have a, a partisan back check or, or check you know what I'm trying to say there. Yeah, I mean, I have hope that it, that it'll be it'll be vetted in a proper way that the voice will be raised. I mean, it is a, it is a it is a one control party. So I hope that those issues get voiced out. I, I think that I know that that's a number of the the Republicans' concerns about the legislation. Um, 
I would consider more the traditional Republicans they're concerned about the the the, the uh, public safety component to it. Uh, I'm probably more in the middle, surprising, not surprisingly, on that stuff. As as long as I think that the social that the uh, public safety components related to impairment. Um, and that law enforcement have the tools to be able to deal with this, as as which will happen is that when it's, when it's, if it's legalized and expanded, um, if it, excuse me, if it's legalized, it will expand. Uh, there will be more instances of people driving impaired uh, behind the wheel of motor vehicle with that. And so, as long as public, as long as law enforcement has the tools, the technology, uh, and the laws are put in place to to deal with it responsibly, uh, I think uh, I think it could happen. Interesting conversation. You, you, you got to offer your time. Oh, okay. Well, I, I feel like the horse is already out of the gate here. I mean, it's going to happen, and if the, if we can put the right, uh, you know, rules and uh, procedures in place, and we can find some way to get some tax revenue, I think it's a, it's going to be a win for our state. I, with you, Michael, I'm a little bit concerned about some of the ramifications when it comes to driving with any type of impairment, and I, that's why I was really interested to hear uh, Representative Stevenson talk talk about the the open container i had not heard that before and that would might be a way to be able to uh, convict those that are maybe driving with impairment so it sounds like we have a, a a great representative on top of this and so hopefully this as this unfolds we'll share more as well you know if you want to reach out to us and chat a little bit more about the some of these issues let us know some different topics that you'd like to uh, have us address also let us know if there's any guests that you would like us to, to reach out to because each week we'd love to bring you uh, a guest on the show and if you want to reach out to becky and michael directly tell us how we can uh, talk to the two of you i'm on twitter at at m broadcorp and i am on twitter at allery rl all right so michael's passing me something very true the week to, oh, our, yeah, of course do, we're going to do, do the tweet of the, of the week. week. I just want to make sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just want to be, let people know if they want to reach out to you on yes. any of these topics. All right, so the tweet of the week. So what did you guys find this week that uh, our audience might be listened, inter- interested in? Well, I, I retweeted at Dave Thule, D-A-V-T-H-U-L. And he retweeted, he, he, he quote tweeted Marjorie Taylor Greene. And so Marjorie Taylor Greene had tweeted out that she's, demand, I demand an immediate investigation into COVID vaccines and the dramatic increase of people dying suddenly. This can no longer be ignored as, as, as is as not political. Dave retweeted it and said, as long as, as the Republican Party remains focused on the past, election denial and COVID conspiracies, they will continue to shed supporters and lose elections. Dave is exactly right. Dave is a, a, a former Republican activist, still a Republican, from uh, Steele County, southern Minnesota, uh, who's someone who I hope to have, Becky and I both know and we hope to have on the show in the near future. He's a principled uh, Republican um, and uh, someone who uh, I respect his voice. We've disagreed over the years, but I respect his voice, and he's someone who we hope to have on here. Becky. Yeah, you know, I was uh, looking into Representative Stevenson's recent tweets, you know, as I do before we have a guest on, and, and you know, there was a tweet that caught my eye. He was on that issue on KSTP um, on Friday and uh, tweeted out a link to that over the weekend, and somebody replied with, he combed his hair with a caramel apple, question mark? Um, and, and Zach retweeted this himself, asking, you know, help me out because I'm confused. Go ahead. And uh, so my my two comments are one, 
I've never heard that before, combing your hair with the caramel apple Nor being, a, being a saying of any sort. And Ugh. two, I got to say, uh, looking at this photo, it doesn't look like there's anything wrong with, it, with the representative's hair. So it was a interesting tweet that caught my eye. I mean, and where would you come up with a caramel apple to comb your hair know, with? Right? I'm, I'm envious that Representative Stevenson could be accused of having caramel, combing his hair with a caramel apple because I would love to have the hair. And the caramel apple. So kudos to him for, for having the hair and his willingness to respond in such a cheeky yeah, way. Very, very, very smart of him. Uh, you know, we, we talked about some upcoming guests. You, The three of us have batted around some different upcoming guests. Is there any that you would like to tease our audience with that we might be able to uh, uh, have in studio in the future? I think we're looking at uh, wanting to stay focused on the legislature. Uh, having some of those guests, we're also going to have some some folks in sports, other type of stuff. I, I don't want to I don't want to uh, give any names at this point right now, but that's the type of people we're looking at. Becky, suggestions? Yeah, you know, state state legislators. Um, hopefully, some maybe uh, some of our friends from Congress, um, potentially some journalists that can give us some inside scoop. Former um, staffers that have worked in variety of levels of um, various levels of government and everything in between. So again, if you have any ideas, anybody that you'd like to hear of, any if you, if you see anybody say anything great in an article that uh, would be good for us to hear more from, let us know. And also in future weeks, I, I can move on to sit down with the two of you and hear about your background, your years of working in uh, you know, your various areas of the Republican Party So and working for, with different candidates. I think that would be interesting for our audiences to hear as well. So I appreciate we, it. We That'd be good. That. All right. We appreciate you listening to the Broadcord Report. And as our audience continues to grow. Uh, we want to say thank you and please share the Broadcorp report with your friends, family, uh, through, and through all the different social media channels. And the, th- the thumbs up we're getting uh, is also really appreciated. So continue to give us the thumbs up. And I'm Todd Walker with this week's edition of the Broadcorp Report. <laughs>